This is episode six of Garner's Greek Mythology. Today we walk with Artemis, a truly relentless, unwavering, unsparing goddess. Some would even call her implacable, in that she had an obsession, that is, to hunt animals while protecting them and while protecting young girls and women. Welcome to Garner's Greek Mythology. This is Patrick Garner. I'm a mythologist and the author of three novels. They constitute a trilogy and have one theme, that the ancient Greek gods are here and that they never left. Imagine with me that they were never myths. The following short poem is part of song 17 of the Homeric hymns. The immortal lines describe Artemis. I celebrate Artemis, clamorous huntress. Golden are her arrows, terrible virgin assaulter of stags. With a volley of arrows, sister indeed of Apollo, whose ritual sword is bright. She through the shadowy mountains and over the high windy highlands takes her delight in the chase as she bends her golden bow and launches deadly shots. Then the towering crests of the lofty mountaintops tremble. The forest resounds and the underbrush echoes dreadfully to the complaint of the beasts. And the earth even shivers as does the fish-swarming deep. The Greeks believed these words to be from the great Homer himself, the famed author. These songs were written to bridge the chasm between the divine and human worlds. Now we walk with Artemis, the huntress. She's austere, she's implacable. Why use a word like implacable? It encapsulates her traits of being unsparing, unwavering and relentless. The ancient Greeks did not consider her cruel, but instead severe. And yet she cared deeply for women and girls. She was their protector while she reveled in the hunt. In truth, all of the gods were riddled with contradictions. As we explore Artemis, do not think of her as a myth. In this world, as it is in my trilogy about these beings, the gods are still here, they never left. We may speak of her in the past tense, but I often bring her into the present interacting with us today. Artemis loved woodlands and wild places. She lived to hunt. She lived to protect young girls and expectant mothers. The Greeks said that she loved and protected all things that suckled. That included the newly born and young animals and forests. But there's a massive contradiction beating in the heart of Artemis. She's the guardian of the innocent, but she's also a superlative hunter one who revels in the kill. Think about that for a second. She protects a fawn from birth, then hunts it when it becomes a stag. These goddesses are complex. They're multidimensional. They're not the cartoon characters our modern cultures have made them. 
The ancient Greeks believed a goddess could shelter the young and innocent while delighting in a blood hunt. In the Cycladic island south of mainland Greece, in the deep blue Aegean Sea, in the cities throughout Greece, Athens, Sparta, Corinth, and throughout the region, the goddess Artemis was known as the Maiden of the Silver Bow, who would loose her arrows, and they were always deadly. Homer called her the terrible virgin assaulter of stags. This title came not from legend, but from seeing her at work. The scholar Dr. Jenny March notes that Artemis was also seen as the agent of death in a more general sense. She writes, any unexpected death of a woman could be attributed to the sudden and unerring arrows of Artemis. In Homer's Odyssey, when Odysseus meets his mother in Hades, tearfully he asks her how she died. Was it a long illness, he whispers, or did Artemis, the archer goddess, visit you bringing you down with her gentle shafts? So who was this divinity? The goddess surrounded herself with nymphs, girls she used as little assistants. She had almost a hundred, and they varied in age from eight to twenty. They never grew old. They followed her on the hunt, helping as needed. In the divine pantheon, nymphs were an order below that of the gods. They didn't have special powers other than immortality. And the oldest ones would sometimes entertain themselves by seducing mortals. But Artemis required her nymphs to practice perfect chastity as she did herself. Nymphs were like handmaidens or servants in medieval times. And another interesting observation, they were there for goddesses, but never gods. Although they were subservient, they were content, even honored. To serve was their sole purpose. The Greeks considered nymphs personifications of nature. They were believed to inhabit springs and forest glades and wildlands. How did Artemis acquire this band of girls? At an early age, she asked her father Zeus for a present. The gift she wanted was this gaggle of beautiful girls, and Zeus, unable to resist her charm, granted her wish. Thereafter, when she was on the hunt, she was always attended by a dozen or more of these carefree spirits. Nymphs, by the way, play an important role in all three of my novels. They function as priestesses and cooks. They attend Vassar, majoring in biochemistry. No, really, it's quite fun to watch them thriving in the modern world. And they have brilliant minds, yet they never complain and never indulge in temper tantrums. They're never sullen, never morose. Coming across a mopey, depressed nymph would be an impossibility. Delighted and satisfied are probably the best words to describe these unique girls. Now in today's modern, cynical, and hypercritical world, to create female characters like the nymphs, with their happily submissive and subservient traits, would be considered abhorrent, even hurtful. But again, they served women, goddesses, who were rulers of men. They never served mortal men. Yes, occasionally nymphs entertained mortal men, but it was for their own pleasure. And remember, 3,000 years ago, Greece was an unimaginably different world than our modern one. 
Unlike her nymphs, Artemis was hardly carefree. She, like her sister Athene, was a virgin and fiercely proud of her status. And later, the Romans, in their infuriating way, renamed her. As they did many of the Greek gods, she became Diana. It's no coincidence that Hollywood's Wonder Woman is also named Diana. As I mentioned a moment ago, she demanded perfect chastity from her nymphs. One of them, Callisto, was ambushed and raped by Zeus. Rather than show the girl pity or curse Zeus, which today we would expect, Artemis turned Callisto into a bear. and then banished her into the woods to be hunted. But don't worry, Caliso was ultimately spared. Although the stories about this incident vary, just before she was about to be killed in a hunt, the gods themselves intervened, seeing the injustice at hand. She was transformed into a constellation in the northern sky, the one we call Ursa Major, which means the Great Bear. The story of Callisto does demonstrate the cold, steely character of this goddess. Artemis's rules applied whether they were broken intentionally or not. It's important to understand how Artemis fits into the picture. She was the sister of Apollo, their mother was Leto, and their father, of course, Zeus. Artemis's association with Apollo as her brother was another delicious contradiction, for Apollo was known as the god of healing. Of course, Artemis, his sister, is anything but. She's the mistress of the hunt, the consummate killer. Increasing the paradox, Apollo's unerring arrows were known to bring plague and death, so much for being the god of healing. Is your head spinning yet? If not, remember that his sister Artemis, while living for the hunt, sheltered the innocent. If these divine kids weren't conflicted, can you imagine having an impulse to nurture and simultaneously to kill? The impulse to heal, but also to start plagues? But here's my analysis. These incongruities strike me as only feeling this way from our perspective in modern times. The ancient Greeks were disarmingly superstitious, while at the same time amazingly sophisticated. The Greeks' art and architecture has never been bettered. It was their constant warfare and bickering that eventually destroyed them. Their scientists postulated that the world was round and that the earth revolved around the sun. That knowledge was then lost for two millennium. Their great thinkers theorized that matter was composed of atoms, yet they believed dangerous spirits inhabited every dark corner. What continues to come up in our examination of Greeks is one thing, contradiction. And Artemis certainly personified that quality. Perhaps these deities were a reflection on the people who created them. Or perhaps ancient Greece is a world of contradiction and the gods and mortals fit together as they should. 
Greek women in childbirth prayed to Artemis. Remember, she protected all of those who nursed. She was sometimes called the moon goddess when she bent her bow to shoot. The arc of the bow was said to be the sliver of the new moon. When I follow her tales and imagine her striding through the wild glades of Greece, I see more darkness, though, than light. Her severity echoes Athene, and her chastity seems inevitable. In time, she became associated with Hecate, her half-sister, another of Zeus's daughters. Hecate is the patron saint of witches, both ancient and modern, of those who call themselves Wiccan. Hecate was three-headed. If you saw her, you confronted a lion, a dog, and a horse. Robert Graves, the English poet, called her the original triple goddess. Hecate could be found at night beside intersections where three roads joined. She ran with a terrifying pack of hellhounds and screeching ghosts. Indeed, one scholar wrote that Hecate was sometimes known as the Artemis of the crossroads. That Artemis and Hecate somehow slowly merged into a common, fearsome goddess reflects Artemis's reputation for bringing sudden death. Perhaps the most famous story involving Artemis was that of her confrontation with Actaeon, a mortal who was the grandson of Cadmos, king of Thebes. Actaeon, like Artemis, was a skilled, almost obsessive hunter. There are several versions of what triggered the goddess's anger, but the most consistent one is that while hunting, Actaeon came across her bathing with her nymphs. Rather than fleeing for his life, he lingered to watch. One version is that he tried to force himself on her. She spotted Actaeon watching as she and her nymphs bathed in a forest spring. Outraged, she instantly turned him into a stag, a male deer. But he kept his human mind fully aware of what he'd become. He bounded into the forest, antlers glinting against the sun. His own 50 hounds pursued him, baying and biting at his legs while he ran in terror. Only minutes passed before he tired and his dogs dragged him down and tore Acteon into pieces. Only upon his death was Artemis's anger quelled. In episode five of these podcasts, the, the one about Athene, a similar incident occurred with the mortal man spying on the goddess. In that case, the mortal Tiresias was caught spying on Athene and was merely blinded by the goddess as punishment. Artemis was hardly as kind, but Actaeon was a fool. All hunters in Greece knew better. Surprising goddesses at Bath was reckless. Artemis was not as much humiliated as outraged, and Actaeon, a king's grandson, paid the ultimate price. Artemis offered him no leniency despite his royal lineage. In our episode about Athene, we learned of an ancient Greek origin story of spiders. A woman named Arachne boasted of her weaving skills and beat the goddess Athene in a weaving competition. Athene punished her by turning her into a spider so she might weave for eternity. A similar story involves Artemis. 
Adonis came to Artemis' attention when he claimed he was a better hunter. It was a foolish claim as predictably she punished him. In his instance, she sent a wild boar to kill him as he hunted in a nearby forest. He was a favorite of Aphrodite and was fawned upon by all who saw him. Many Greeks were boastful, but their frequent declarations that they were better at one thing or another than the gods usually led to their demise. In this series, I make periodic references to the ancient city of Troy as it played a pivotal role in the Greek consciousness. You may have heard of Agamemnon. He was chosen by all the Greek cities to lead the war against Troy. Shortly before the war began, Agamemnon infuriated the goddess Artemis by killing a stag in one of her sacred groves. He then doubled the error by boasting he was a far better hunter. The Greeks seemed slow to learn and quick to brag. When the time came for the thousand ships to sail for Troy, Artemis stopped them all. Their oars locked and the wind disappeared. An oracle predicted that the mighty fleet would never be allowed to sail unless Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter, Iphigenia, to the shock of his wife and to the cheering of his troops. Agamemnon agreed to the oracle's demand. Euripides, the famous Athenian playwright, describes how Iphigenia is carried on a pallet to the sacrificial altar. Just imagine being there. She's gagged to prevent her cries from being heard. She reaches out her arms, pleading to anyone for her life. Agamemnon himself lifts his sword high to plunge it into his daughter, and at the last moment, Artemis snatches the girl away, leaving a fawn in her place. The fortunate princess became an immortal companion of the goddess. Euripides has her become Artemis' priestess. Regardless, at the end of the Ten-Year War, Agamemnon returns in glory to his home, where within minutes his wife, who has never forgiven him for attempting to kill their daughter, kills the king in his bath. Lessons to be learned aside, Artemis was pretty savage in playing out this twisted tale of bloodlust, all because of Agamemnon's original disrespect. I mentioned that Artemis's mother was Leto. Leto was a titan and was Zeus's sixth wife. Hera was Zeus's sister. Upon Leto's pregnancy, Hera, jealous of the new wife, put the word out across the world to not allow Leto shelter or sanctuary. No one was to take in or provide comfort to the woman who married her brother. And so it was that Leto wandered from country to country and island to island, only to be sent along from one to the next. Finally, she arrived at an impoverished Cycladic island, which we now know as Delos. In desperation, she promised the Delians, the few who inhabited the barren rock, that if they allowed her to rest there, she would bring them riches and fame once her children were born. They welcomed her, and she stayed, and soon went into labor, a labor that would not end for nine whole days. It was Hera working in the background to prevent the labor from ending. Remember the phrase, if hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn? 
Finally, the other gods distracted Hera momentarily, allowing Leto to give birth. <laughs> Delivering beside a sacred lake, Leto was attended by Athene and Aphrodite. Artemis was the firstborn of the twins on Delos, then came her brother Apollo. Homer wrote that she helped deliver her brother and that Apollo leapt out into the light and all the goddesses screamed in joy. All of these stories are so entangled. Some years ago, I spent a day on Delos while visiting Greece. Among the ruins, there's a lone date palm at a spot where Leto was said to have given birth. The sacred lake dried up centuries ago, but regarding the island of Delos where Leto found this refuge, after the births of the twins, as she'd promised, the island's fortunes turned for the better. At the height of the Athenian Empire, Delos became an immensely wealthy, booming trade center. Here's an interesting aside. Artemis favored bears, and it's not known exactly why. But her name, Artemis, may shed light. The etymology of the name Artemis is Arctemnus, or in Greek, she who protects the bear sanctuary. When two Athenian men killed a bear sacred to the goddess, she sent a plague that would only cease if the Athenians pledged their daughters to her. Remember the story of how Artemis turned Callisto, one of her nymphs raped by Zeus, into a bear? Perhaps that choice of animal is not as random as it may seem. Artemis did live up to her name's meaning by founding a bear sanctuary called Artemis Boronia. Its location was Baron in Attica, where a river flowed into the sea. It was believed that Epigenia, Agamemnon's daughter, who we discussed earlier and who became Artemis's priestess, founded the sanctuary in collaboration with Athene. The place became one of the most hallowed sites associated with Athens. Their girls between the ages of five and 10, all exclusively daughters of Athenian citizens, were brought together for a common premenstrual bonding experience. At Brauron, they each became little bears, or arctoi. All wore yellow or saffron tunics and bear masks. Artemis was called the great she-bear. At the end of the celebrations, the older girls shed their tunics and ran naked, carrying torches and branches. As Joan Conley, an archeologist based at New York University writes, the girls were placed under the care of the virgin Artemis, who shepherded them through the dangerous transitional period between childhood and puberty. So here again, we see Artemis as the protector, even the mentor of young girls. The great bear dances the girls were taught were slow and solemn. And in Broran, they escaped the confines of their homes and the expectations of their upper-class families. Yet their stay in her sanctuary clearly marked the transition from young girl in Parthenos, which, remember, means virgin, to gyne, which in Greek means a woman. Indeed, within a few years, usually between the ages of 12 and 14, all Athenian girls would marry and never again be allowed the same freedoms. Yet, while under Artemis's tutelage, they ran wild. At 
bra run they could at graduation shed their robes, the sun on their hair and shoulders, and feel the sun on their arms without shame. The great Artemis ensured their safety and confirmed their uniqueness. For they were Athenians and believed that in no other city could girls and women be as remarkable. And so it was that the goddess of the silver bow, she of the new moon, golden arrows, and bright sword, Artemis, the terrible virgin assaulter of stags, watched over girls and women, often decades later as they passed from this world to the next. She was the great destroyer and the caring goddess. She was gentle, merciful, and swift to loose her arrows when provoked. But what happened to her? One golden morning, Artemis, like Athene, Apollo, and many of the other gods, decoupled from the Olympians and walked from Zeus's grand theater, one which had increasingly become a theater of the absurd. Playing her role had become tiresome. We can't attribute her escape to the new religion. Christianity was still a hundred years from creation. No, she, like the other gods, had begun to repeatedly ask herself, is this all there is? Even royalty tires of the weight of the crown, the constant fawning of her subjects. She had demanded respect for more than a millennium, punishing mockery mercilessly. At first it was satisfying, then to her surprise it wasn't. This dissatisfaction spread through Olympia like a disease. It wasn't as if she shrugged off her ancient lifestyle, hardly. She remained the consummate hunter and she sheltered those who remembered her. She retreated to the wildlands of Greece with her nymphs. She maintained the old ways, the sacred traditions she had initiated so long ago. Then, centuries later in another land, she rejoined her brother Apollo along with Athene, Aphrodite, and others. After all, they're gods and divinities. All of them share a common father, the once mighty Zeus. There would be time, and another time, for them to reemerge. In our next podcast, we'll discuss Apollo, Artemis's brother, the god of healing, prophecy, and plague, and the patron god of Delphi. Join me for the next episode of Garner's Greek Mythology. This is your host, Patrick Garner. Be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com or find me on Amazon. My three novels are set in today's world and feature Greek gods who meddle and maneuver as they always have.